Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Paola Lettieri, Professor of Chemical Engineering at UCL and Academic Director of UCList. Welcome to today's UCL's Lunch Hours Lectures. This is the fourth of a series which is being dedicated to UCList, our new campus at the, at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. We have um, given you a flavor of the uh, research programs, some of the research programs, uh, and also last week about some of the educational programs that will be on offer at UCList. But the lecture today is different, and it really takes us with Amy Smith through the historical development of UCL in Bloomsbury from an architectural uh, um, point of view and drawing some parallels with the development of the new UCL campus at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. So Amy is from the Survey of London group, which is situated in the Bartlett School of Architecture at UCL. The Survey of London group moved to UCL, in fact, in 2013, and Amy has been working on a doctorate with them at UCL since 2015. Her work is focusing on the uh, architectural history of University College London, including also the teaching hospitals. Um, she studied English literature at the University of Durham and also history of art at the Courtauld Institute of Art. And Amy, you were also uh, based and seconded with the architectural investigation team of British Heritage. So quite a lot of knowledge, I expect, about architectural history of London districts and, of course, including UCL. So welcome today and we look forward to your talk. Thank you very much. Um, can you all, all hear me? Great. Um, thank you very much for inviting me to speak as part of the lecture series on UCL East. Um, I work as a historian in the Survey of London, part of the Butler School of Architecture. From its origins is a volunteer project started by the arts and crafts architect, social thinker and designer C.R. Ashby in the 1890s. The survey has developed into an essential source for urban and architectural history. The survey is now a team of several historians and an illustrator working to produce architectural and topographical studies of London districts based to a large extent on original research and fieldwork. The survey has produced 52 volumes covering particular districts or parishes of London and you can see the areas covered on the map to the left of the screen. And our uh, methods have um, evolved continually. There is a separate series of monographs which focus on significant buildings and sites such as the Charter House and County Hall. The team is currently working towards main series volumes on Oxford Street, which is next in line for publication, Whitechapel and South West Marylebone, and the monograph on UCL. The survey's work is widely used by architects, developers, historians and the public and highly regarded for its combination of accessible scholarship with modern photography, archival images and illustrations. This lecture will focus on the early history of UCL's campus in Bloomsbury with an emphasis on themes that coincide with the new campus at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in Stratford. The research is based on my PhD study of the architectural history of UCL from 1825 to 1939. Over the last few years, I've been working with archival material, mostly at UCL, to build up a detailed picture of the early history of the Bloomsbury campus. 
My knowledge of UCL East is much less detailed, partly due to using public-facing records, such as newspapers and journals, but also because my work has focused mainly on the 1820s and 30s. The story of the early years of the Bloomsbury campus navigates a mixture of themes that are relevant to the creation of UCL East, such as the renewal of a disused urban site and the translation of institutional aspirations into built form. There may be other coincidences, differences and complexities that the audience would like to contribute later to broaden the scope of this talk, which springs from my perspective as a historian. Before I start, I'd like to thank Ben Campkin, Peter Guillory and Emma Gribble for their comments and contributions, along with Robert Winkworth and Colin Penman at UCL Special Collections and Archives and Records, and Nina Perlman at UCL Art Museum. UCL traces its beginnings to a group of radical thinkers who wished to establish a secular, non-residential metropolitan university. The scheme appears to have been generated by the Scottish poet and writer Thomas Campbell, who you can just see on the left of the screen. Um, he was inspired by universities in his native country and also on the continent, such as Bonn in Germany. In 1825, Campbell published a formal address in the Times to Henry Broom, the Edinburgh-born politician, lawyer, and educational reformer, outlining the core elements of his idea. The institution was to be the first university in the capital and the only one of its kind in England. The only other universities in England at the time, Oxford and Cambridge, had a tutorial system, residential colleges with exclusive social traditions, and religious tests, which excluded all but Anglicans from obtaining a degree. Their limited courses of tuition lacked relevance for a growing number of men who wished to prepare for careers in areas such as commerce and manufacturing. In contrast, the London University would offer a broad curriculum in a lecture-based system to students of all faiths without the barriers of expense and religion. This idea obtained support from a number of different quarters, including dissenters, utilitarian thinkers and Scottish intellect intellectuals, but met with hostility from conservative thinkers. The university was criticised sharply in the Tory press, reflecting contemporary anxieties surrounding social and educational reform. Plans were soon in hand for a rival university, King's College, which had the support of George IV and was granted a royal charter immediately. On the other hand, UCL waited for a royal charter until 1836, when the University of London was formed as the examining board for the two colleges. The level of public support for UCL East contrasts with the difficulties encountered by the university's founders in Bloomsbury. The creation of a new campus at Stratford has won financial support from the Mayor of London and the government. UCL is set to receive the largest share of the government's contribution to the transformation of the Olympic Park into a cultural and creative quarter securing £100 million towards the cost of building UCL East. This funding seems apt in view of UCL East's mission to address challenges for today's world, with a focus on East London. Parallels may be drawn with the aspirations of the founders of UCL in their endeavour to bring innovation, accessibility and relevance to higher education. The new campus aims to connect teaching and research across eight faculties with a focus on four main themes, experiments, arts, society and technology. This academic network will be working towards addressing significant questions relating to health, globalisation, property, technology, urbanism and the environment. 
In this way, the broad aims of UCLE strike a chord with the intentions of the university's founders, who set out to provide a practical education that was more attuned to new and shifting social and economic conditions in early 19th century England. UCL has been associated with Bloomsbury since 1825, when efforts were made to secure a suitable location for the new university. Its founders purchased a freehold site comprising seven and a half acres of undeveloped land at the north end of Gower Street, one of the last portions of ground not yet built on in a predominantly residential neighborhood. Contemporary maps and a surviving plan, uh, this one here from UCL Special Collections, um, show that this piece of ground was intended for Carmarthen Square, a residential square destined for an elegant and respectable class of buildings, or so an advertisement for the sale of the site stated in 1824. In reality, it had fallen into neglect after a prolonged period of inactivity and resembled a swampy wasteland. Plans for Carmarthen Square had been instigated by the merchant and banker Sir William Paxton in the 1790s, but delayed by the Napoleonic Wars and the economic depression that followed. The development was finally abandoned by the university's purchase of the ground in 1825. The Tory newspaper, John Bull, fixated its opposition to the university on its choice of site. An invective launched on Christmas Day in 1825 reported the large space of mud and nastiness that had been purchased by the joint stock Carmarthen Street University, or so they called it. The newspaper's editor, Theodore Hook, invented the nickname Stinker Malee and a satirical verse, which you can see on the screen. By stressing the boggy condition of its site, Hook insinuated that the university rested on an uncertain footing, both literally and metaphorically. John Bull continued to refer to the university as Stinker Malee for more than 35 years. Despite the mockery of the site, it fulfilled several objectives for the university. Bloomsbury was a broadly central location that could be reached by students from all parts of London, a requirement that had been identified from the outset. Another attraction was its setting in a residential district which brought the university to its target market, young men from the so-called middling classes, seeking an education close to their family homes or opportunities for employment and training. The site was also within walking distance of chambers and could be reached easily by apprentices to lawyers and medical professionals. To accelerate to the present day, UCL East is also ideally positioned to realise its aspirations. The campus will be located at the centre of a new cultural and educational quarter, shared with other institutions such as Sadler's Wells, the London College of Fashion and the Victoria and Albert Museum. This agglomeration of cultural institutions opens the potential for innovative partnerships and collaborations. For example, UCL's Global Disability Innovation Hub has launched an MSc in partnership with Loughborough University and the London College of Fashion. The wider vicinity of the campus will also serve to develop academic aims. The proximity of Tech City, the buzzword for the cluster of technology companies centred on Shoreditch, is perceived as a boon for research on robotics and autonomous systems, while the Institute of Finance and Technology will be close to banking and financial institutions in the City of London. Above all, UCL East will provide lots of space for the university to develop new ideas and innovations. The Nature Smart Centre plans to use the Olympic Park as a living laboratory for pioneering work on biodiversity, 
and the Academic Propulsion Lab will launch a fuel cell bus and a hydrogen filling centre as part of its research on carbon-free transports. Other research initiatives planned for UCL East call for large and adaptable spaces in purpose-built structures. The Culture Lab will have six creative spaces to facilitate a variety of activities, including exhibitions, performances, archiving and public engagement. The new campus will also provide space for initiatives such as the Manufacturing Futures Lab, the Institute of Making and the Urban Room and Memory Workshop. Another parallel with the early years of the Bloomsbury campus is apparent in the regeneration of Stratford. The establishment of the university in Gower Street formed part of the 19th century evolution of Bloomsbury from a middle-class residential district to the intellectual quarter of London, a transition which has been charted by Rosemary Ashton in her book, Victorian Bloomsbury. But while the character of Bloomsbury evolved in a gradual and incidental manner, regeneration is an important and deliberate component of UCL East. So while the character of Bloomsbury evolved in an incidental um, and gradual manner, regeneration is an important and deliberate component of UCL East. The location of UCL's new campus in Stratford with other major, major cultural institutions forms part of creating a legacy from the Olympic and Paralympic Games in 2012 and expanding on regeneration projects in the area. The Lower Lee Valley was once an industrial landscape, serving as the centre of the capital's industry in the 19th and 20th centuries. A large sweep of marshland was bisected by canals, providing access to industrial works. Um, so here in the 1870s map of Stratford Marsh, um, if you can see in the, the middle of what well, you can see the, the railway um, kind of going in a north-easterly direction and, um, and the site of UCL East is kind of just um, where it says Stratford, place in the middle there. The City Mill River is to the south-west of that and then the Waterworks River to the northeast. Um, so um, you can see here it's the, the Eastern Counties Railway. Um, which later became the, known as the Great Eastern Railway Line, um, which um, stretched from, uh, from Liverpool Street over to Norwich. From the 1890s, this stretch of the City Mill River, so again just at the, the bottom um, left of the screen, was bounded at the south by colour works and oil works, while the northeastern bank of the Waterworks River was occupied by distilleries and works for soap, candles and varnish. The intervening strip of land, which is the site of UCL East, was later covered by railway sidings and sheds for maintaining train engines and carriages. More similarities between the early years of the Bloomsbury campus and the creation of UCL East originate in processes in the production of institutional architecture, which have been standardised over the last 200 years. In both instances, the university initiated an architectural competition to obtain designs for a new campus. This mode of procuring designs for buildings has a long history, with well-known examples of competitions dating from 15th century Florence. But it became the standard approach to important civic projects from the 1830s. After the site in Bloomsbury was settled in 1825, one of the first tasks performed by the university's council was the formation of a building committee to oversee the provision of a purpose-built university, from commissioning designs to construction. The committee started to assemble an architectural competition inviting four architects at the top of the profession to take part. By spring 1826, the competition had been extended to six architects. There had been an awkward exchange between the university and a young architect, John Davies, 
who had been invited to submit designs at an early stage, but was later excluded from the competition, apparently at the re request of the other architects, who would only compete with, quote, men of their own standing. After pointing out that this policy was what, at odds with what he termed the university's liberal and enlightened principles, Davies was invited to enter the competition. It's worth noting that William Wilkins, the eventual winner, was enticed to accept the offer to compete by the names of the other architects involved, who were, quote, sufficient to confer honour on the contest. It seems that for Wilkins, the level of the playing field for the competition was almost as important as the commission itself. The architects William Atkinson, John Davies, C.R. Cockrell, J.P. Gandhi, Geoffrey Wyattville and William Wilkins were eventually all invited to submit designs. The candidates were supplied with a plan of the site and an explanatory letter containing a brief specification. The committee requested a building most perfectly adapted to all their objects, with accommodation for around 29 courses, including 12 lecturing halls and an equal number of examination rooms. Expense was also a matter of concern, the committee specified that the building should cost no more than £70,000 and the competitors should provide reliable estimates. The instructions also included an extract from letters by William Henry Playfair, the architect for the completion of Old College in Edinburgh, which was then in the course of construction. Playfair's letters spanned a range of topics, from setting the timetable for lectures and preserving discipline among the students to the importance of, quote, good, strong water closets. The architects submitted their proposals in March 1826 and deliberations took place over the following months. The task of selecting the winning design also navigated a long list of concerns, including the projected cost and the available space of each plan. A large sheet entitled Analysis of Plans, which you can see here, transcribed version of it, um, the, the original document is at UCL Special Collections, um, and this provided a list of the competitors on the left-hand side in alphabetical order um, and divided the components of the plan into 16 fields, um, which spanned really from the, the extent of the roof to the size of formal gardens and the, the available space in each room. The university was swayed by the projected cost of the proposals and selected the plan that promised to be the least expensive, the submission by Wilkins. The procurement of plans for UCL East has also followed a competitive process and been the subject of a lengthy and complicated consultation stage. One of the first steps was the selection of a master plan for the campus to provide a framework for its long-term development. In 2015, five consortia were shortlisted, including teams led by ACOM, Lifshutz, Davidson, Sanderlands, Make and Allies and Morrison. The winning team was led by LDA Design, working in partnership with Nicholas Hare Architects, consulting engineers, Bureau Happold, Studio Weave, and other specialist collaborators. The master plan was evolved in collaboration with the London Legacy Development Corporation, the official planning body in charge of the management and de development of the Olympic Park. The size of the campus was increased to 180,000 square metres, a significant leap from the original brief of 125,000 square metres. And this promised an extensive campus that corresponds to around 40% of the size of the Bloomsbury site. The next step was to invite detailed plans for the first phase of the master plan, comprising two buildings at Pool Street and Marshgate. Um, you can see Pool Street is um, on the, the um, bottom left of the, the screen and then Marshgate um, opposite it over the, over the river. Um, and here, a short list of five teams for each building was announced in 2016. 
Um, a team led by Stanton Williams was chosen for Marshgate, and a team led by Lipschitz, Davidson, Sanderlands was selected for, for Pool Street. Despite the appearance of continuity in the university's approach to obtaining architectural advice, there are obvious differences in the organisation of the architectural competitions. In 1825, the university opted for a closed competition restricted to six competitors after wrestling with ideas posed by the architects over status, exclusivity and fairness. In contrast, the master plan and designs for UCL East were procured through an open competition and narrowed to a shortlist before the eventual winners were selected. From my perspective, the competition process appears to have been more convoluted and variable in Bloomsbury, but perhaps this is the consequence of the standardisation of the competition system over time or an outcome of the type of records that I've referred to. For an overview of the evolution of designs for UCL East, I've really relied on sources in the public domain, such as architects, websites and planning applications, which lack an insider's perspective. On the other hand, the letters, diaries and minute book entries that have enabled me to build up a picture of the Bloomsbury competition contain glimpses of a more complicated collaboration guided by multiple voices, from the official deliberations and decisions of the University Council and its building committee to the influence and opinions of architects and advisors. But it is worth noting that the design and planning of UCL East has been equally collaborative, with multidisciplinary teams working on the master plan for the campus and the schemes for Marshgate and Pool Street. For the first architectural expression of the university, its founders selected a design that combined grandeur with practicality and the promise of affordability. The analytical chart showed that the winning design by Wilkins was the most economical option, combining the lowest estimate with the largest area for lecture halls. Wilkins wrote an explanatory letter to explain his designs, um, emphasising his experience in designing college buildings and the correct proportions of the portico and columns, which were based closely on Greek classical precedents. He also highlighted that the 10-columned Corinthian portico was the only example of its kind in England. The portico would open into an octagonal vestibule flanked by a great hall. You can see the, the vestibule right in the middle, and the, the hall would have in this stage of the design, was at the front, um, with the, the hall and the library at either side. Um, in total, there were 26 lecturing halls and 49 examination rooms, and along with an astronomy department with two observatories. Wilkins has, had also devised an extensive medical department and included leisure spaces, spaces for students, including assembling rooms, retiring rooms, and cloisters for exercise. Perhaps all, above all, Wilkins emphasised that his design was grand and magnificent and that its imposing effect would attract public interest and financial support. The competition design by Wilkins was gradually reduced after the university received building tenders that were unexpectedly high. An impression of the final design is afforded by this print. Um, the principal difference is the transfer of the Great Hall from the, the front of the building to the back. Uh, it's just projecting um, behind the, the vestibule now. Um, this arrangement was less expensive, secured two ground floor lecture theatres underneath the main hall and meant the construction of the hall could be deferred. The building committee decided to proceed with the east wing only initially, and that, that's the central part with the, the portico we all um, know, and um, the foundation stone was laid in April 1827 and the building opened to the university's first students in October 1828. Marshgate 1 and Pool Street West at UCL East offer interesting parallels and contrasts. Marshgate 1 has been planned as the first main academic building in the new campus, comprising a mixture of laboratories, studios, workshops and exhibition areas. 
Its design has been overseen by Stanton Williams, recognised for recent work at the Central St Martins campus at King's Cross and the Sainsbury Laboratory at the University of Cambridge. Marshgate 1 will be located to the southeast of the Olympic Stadium and the Orbit Tower on a site close to the Waterworks River. Um, more university blocks are planned for three plots in its immediate vicinity, which you can just see hugging the, um, the, the main Marshgate 1 building at the moment in this, this model by the architects. Um, Marshgate 1 has been planned to invite interaction with the public, with large expanses of glazing on the lower levels, a cafe and a foyer with a full-height atrium faced with open balconies. And you can see a cut-through here um, showing the, the atrium um, rising up to a, a light well with um, laboratories and all of these other spaces um, around it. Pool Street West will occupy a site on the northeastern bank of the Waterworks River, connected to Marshgate by a bridge. The building will form part of another academic complex positioned at the east of the London Aquatic Centre, which you can just see um, on the... just might be able to see its um, profile um, to the, the right of um, Pool Street West. Um, the building, um, its design has been overseen by a team led by the architects um, LDS, which also has a track record for university buildings, having undertaken commissions for Birmingham University, Birkbeck College and the London South Bank University, along with producing a master plan for um, the, the UCL's campus in Bloomsbury. Pool Street West has been designed as a mixed-use complex, comprising two residential towers over an academic podium building. Research and educational activities will be concentrated in the lower part of the building, which will house workshops, laboratories and studios for the Future Living Institute, Culture Lab and the Global Disability Innovation Hub, along with other research units. Efforts to encourage public interaction and accessibility have also extended to Pool Street West, which includes a terrace, an auditorium and spaces for events and exhibitions. The UCL Urban Room and Memory Workshop will be a public-facing space, where collaboration, debate and engagement between students, researchers, community groups and the public will focus on the built environment, and especially East London. The Urban Room responds to a call on the Farrell Review of Architecture and the Built Environments, which was published in 2014, for spaces for communities to examine the history, present and future of cities, and will host a range of activities such as public exhibitions and talks. The Memory Workshop will provide opportunities to collect, study and exhibit archival material relating to London, highlighting that knowledge of the past enriches life in urban areas. An associated teaching programme will include an MA in Public History and other postgraduate courses relating to urbanisation and the built environment with a focus on transdisciplinary approaches. Efforts to ensure public interaction and accessibility at Marshgate 1 and Pool Street West are not so very far from Wilkins's ideas about the public function of UCL's first building in Bloomsbury. The explanatory letter that accompanied Wilkins's competition entry demonstrates that he anticipated that the university would contain spaces visited by the public, who would perhaps attend lectures and prize-giving ceremonies. Wilkins referred to the hall, the council room and the library as the principal public rooms of the university, and stressed that, quote, an imposing effect in these public rooms should be given at the outset. The letter also referred to the anatomical museum as part of the showrooms open to the public. Wilkins evidently expected the university to offer public tours or visits, perhaps to raise support for its work in the similar way to charities and hospitals. 
Wilkins's point of view is emphasised in a subsequent letter, which sets out that the university, quote, should be constantly presented to the eye of the, pub of the public or interest may decline. Wilkins evidently viewed public reception as one of the key ingredients for the university's success and a vehicle for raising his own visibility and reputation. An obvious difference between past and present is the attitude towards student accommodation, which has reversed since the foundation of UCL. The university was established as a non-residential institution for students who lived at home or in lodgings elsewhere, along similar lines to the universities in Scotland. In contrast, residential towers are an integral part of Pool Street West, which will provide approximately 500 individual bedrooms and social spaces in the towers. I'd like to end the talk with a few broader thoughts about the foundation of both campuses. The idea that university buildings represent institutional identity or aspirations has gained currency in architectural writing, perhaps unsurprisingly for institutions that deal mostly with ideas. In Bloomsbury, the neoclassical portico of the Wilkins Building has been widely accepted as a proclamation of the secular values of the university's founders. The university's nickname, the Godless College of Gower Street, is probably as familiar today as Stinkamalee was in 19th century Tory newspapers. The deliberations of the university's committees were too preoccupied with practical concerns such as finance and space for this lofty type of thinking, but Wilkins's letters certainly imply that he recognised the commission as a novel and unique challenge. This mural on the right-hand side, um, it's, um, you might recognise it um, from the, the vestibule of the main library, where it's, um, it was painted in the 1920s and placed there. And I think it captures something of the juxtaposition between myth and reality at the Wilkins Building. On the far right, Wilkins is depicted holding up plans for the university to Thomas Campbell, who stands next to him in red. In the background, the portico is in the course of construction. At the centre of the composition stands Jeremy Bentham, who over time has come to respect the ethos of the university's founders, while having no official involvement in its establishment. It is telling that the painting was created, created nearly a century after the East Wing was constructed. The promotion of the new campus in Stratford seems to respond to the coincidence of myth, idealism and aspiration in Bloomsbury, and it is natural for an offshoot of a historic institution to share in its heritage. The idea of the new campus representing a continuation rather than a break from the university's historic base seems apt in view of the other parallels between the campuses. The first phase of UCL East has been perceived by its directors as, quote, a new approach to de developing a university campus for the 21st century, which will be embedded in the local community and business. The academic vision offers a similar description, emphasizing that the new campus will, quote, embody the spirit of the 21st century university. The buildings will provide space and facilities for academic units working on significant issues for today's rapidly changing world while participating in the regeneration of an urban area. In this sense, its aspirations and impact are not so far removed from UCL's founders and the first campus in Bloomsbury, offering a story of continuity and parallels against a backdrop in innovation and change over 200 years. Thank you. Sorry about the, the problems with the speakers. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. That was really fascinating. Is there any question from the audience? Back. 
That was really interesting. Thank you, Amy. Thank uh, you. I see some people in the audience who are working on UCL East. I wonder what their response was to the parallels that Amy's drawn. Thank you. Thank you for putting us on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, from my point of view, I've been working as academic director for UCL East since 2016. And it's really fascinating, if not almost emotional, to actually listen to an historian describe what we have actually developed for UCL East, really with the aid of colleagues across many different faculties at UCL. We've got eight faculties that will expand activities at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park and uh, with Helen, sometimes we actually count how many academics are involved, and it's above 150, really loads of that from Bloomsbury, and perhaps not entirely aware of the history and the architectural development that went on for Bloomsbury. I wish they were all here today, really, to listen and, uh, and kind of being proud of what UCL is planning to do at, um, at QEOP. It's, um, it's amazing, the parallels. There has been uh, controversy around UCL East. Not everything has been smooth, as we know. In the development, UCL is, uh, is being brave in developing a new campus, which is uh, away from Bloomsbury, but really with the, 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 the entire respect of the philosophy and ethos of our uh, um, university. So transforming uh, the area of London in Stratford, but equally redefining the idea of the university, as you pointed out uh, in your lecture. Uh, we want to create a campus which is fully accessible and open, and which really um, is uh, uh, committed, as UCL has always been, to being truly innovative uh, in the research and teaching programs that we'll be offering. So from my point of view, it's, uh, it's been really a pleasure to be sitting there and listening to you describing the various elements of the academic vision that has taken us time to develop. Academic planning started in 2014 uh, when all the faculties were asked to submit an expression of interest for UCL East. And then since then, the enthusiasm of the academics involved then has grown and uh, uh, it's finally making UCL East a reality with construction actually about to, to begin. So thank you very much. Thank you. Is there anything else that anybody else is working on the UCL East program would like to add? Ellen? Were the four sides of the square were built at different times. Yes. So why was that, and, and when was it finally finished? Well, it was finally finished in 1985. Um, so it had a huge um, kind of, um, um, yeah, it took a, a really long time to finish. I think it was mainly due to financial problems. So um, Wilkins's um, estimate really shocked the um, committee, and they even the building committee, and they even considered going back to the drawing board. They were completely um, uh, devastated at one point, but they decided to proceed and just go along with um, with constructing each um, it in phases. Um, but there are also various problems going forward. There was a, a fire in the library, um, in I think in the 1830s, and. Um, and, and then later on, um, different architects um, were involved and, and built the different wings to, to their own designs, but really in keeping with um, Wilkins's um, Greek revivalist design. Um, so um, it's kind of a fascinating story of completion and, and change. Um, yeah. 
Thank you. Hi, I was um, just wondering, it was good to see that budget was king um, <laughs> when they commissioned the architects. Uh, they never stick to budget though. Um, what was the, did you know what the final outturn cost was? Of oh, sorry, I missed that. What was, the, what was the final outturn cost? You mentioned a budget. Oh, um, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, I'd be intrigued to find out what the... <laughs> I, I can... I can uh, I've got a number. Back the office and check. I I've got a number, but it'd be good to have a historian sort of uh, tell me what the true <laughs> number is. But going back to your comment about um, similarities with uh, UCL East, um, uh, you mentioned convoluted uh, design competition, and uh, it was it, back then it was a, it would have been closed. You could have a, a you know a select list. I think it was six that you mentioned. Mm. But the, the sheet that you took, you put up, um, I was actually looking at a sheet. <laughs> yeah, we, we still do that nowadays. Mm. Which that's it. Oh really? Yeah, it's the moderation. Uh, it's just the plans. We moderation um, sheets. We still look at when we do any um, tender or competition. Kevin, you maybe should introduce yourself. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm Kevin Argent, <laughs> Deputy Director of Estates. Um, <laughs> uh, but but uh, so yes, this, uh, there's a lot of similarities. So it's interesting to see that they did that 200 years ago. Um, the convoluted process was uh, following the OJU official uh, journal of the European Union. So because we're in oh. Europe, we have to follow that process. And there was something like 79 submissions that we had to evaluate. So wow. our spreadsheet was much longer than that. <laughs> so, um, That's fascinating. Can't have enough um, architects. The, the original document is it's at UCL Special Collections, and it's um, I wish I'd included a photograph of it, but it's absolutely huge. I was um, amazed when I first saw it and started folding it out. It was quite tightly folded, and um, um, but um, I was really um, fascinated by the the logic and the of uh, of this approach and which seem to whittle down all of these designs um, into numbers, essentially. Um, and especially considering the amount of comment that there's been about um, the portico and its symbolic status and adopting this Greek revivalist design, to see that the building committee was looking at the, the plans in very pragmatic terms, which focused on the, the cost, um, seemed to um, be an interesting contrast to the, the speculation that has come afterwards. Um, but no, I can dig out that information and send you more about the, the, how the building committee dealt with the Wilkins building. <laughs> uh, thank you for that talk. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, the comparison between uh, the communities. Uh, you mentioned that you were looking at newspapers, so you did say that there was a backlash from the um, Tories and that in Bloomsbury it was predominantly middle class. And um, I know that there's obviously some issues in terms of um, UCL East with the community there. So if you saw anything come to light in the public domain or in papers and so on. Well, I, I, I feel that my knowledge of UCL East is nowhere near as detailed as, um, as the work that I've been doing in Bloomsbury. Um, the, the Tory reaction to, um, to um, the UCL's founders um, was really fascinating and how, how these satirical prints were produced and poems um, and which were very publicly published. And, and again, I was really interested to um, find out when I was researching Stinker Malee to find that the term was still coming up 35 years later. It seemed like a, a really um, long-term, prolonged um, kind of... Um, attack, <laughs> but also kind of played out with um, with a, a sense of humour, um, which probably made it quite um, 
compelling and, and interesting to readers. Um, I haven't really looked into UCL East and the, the, the public, um, any, any public um, kind of resistance or um, lack of enthusiasm. I, I, I just don't know about that. But, um, but from looking at the public facing records, I've been really, um, including statements from UCL, um, I've been really interested in the, the efforts um, to make sure that the, the campus is accessible to the public and it interacts with with the, the local community um, in East London. Um, so, so that's been really interesting. Thank you. I can perhaps um, add a couple of words to that uh, in relation to your question. Uh, something that um, we felt very proud of, uh, we've had the reserve mattress applications approved uh, for uh, UCL East Phase 1, which is basically the detailed design of the two buildings. Uh, and this is then dictated uh, the go-ahead uh, for construction. Uh, Kevin and I and other members of the UCL team, we attended the RMA, so this is the planning committing, committee that basically adjudicates all of the planning applications for the area. And when it came to UCL East, the um, approval of the scheme was totally unanimous, and the expression of the committee, not my words, not the words of anybody from UCL, were a majestic development for the east of London, London and the nation. That was amazing. The, the mayor of Newham and the other mayors of the boroughs that we will be connecting with, they are completely supportive of the UCList development. We actually have a strategy for uh, uh, local, uh, for the engagement with the, the public and the local communities, which is very much at the core of the Program, so whether it's research or education that we want to bring at UCL East. So that public engagement is, is a strong element of, uh, of the whole UCL East enterprise. Hello, I'm Andrew. I work in the business liaison aspect of UCL East. Um, one of the things that's obvious from this conversation is that possibly back in 1820s there wasn't a notion of placemaking and that the value of putting down a beautiful new building with a big public purpose wasn't then welcomed by others immediately around it, even though it's had that effect, right? We, we had the knock-on effects. Do you know from reading the, the history when people started to appreciate the secondary effects of having a campus here and the fact that we then begat lots of new neighbours and good things, because that's now valued. People mm. are buying into that about UCL East today. They're saying as soon as UCL East is built, it will have knock-on effects in East London, but clearly that wasn't the case in the 1820s. Do you, do you have a sense of Yes, what, what I'm afraid next? I'm still really stuck in the 1820s and 30s. I've moved on to looking at the, the university's hospital, so I've, um, now, which was, was for the first hospital was built in the 1830s, so I've really been focusing on that. But I think it's really interesting how in Bloomsbury, and, and this is um, covered in a lot of detail by Rosemary Ashton in her book on Victorian Bloomsbury, um, um, she provides a, a really detailed account of how um, more institutions um, set up base in, in Bloomsbury and it's become a very intellectual quarter of London from, uh, and, and also how um, these institutions have been quite happy making homes in terraced houses and then eventually rebuilding. Um, it's really changed the character of the, um, of the architecture uh, in the area as well as the, um, the kind of social and cultural feeling. Um, so I think that's a really interesting um, parallel to draw across with Stratford to see this density of 
um, and kind of rich institutional life. And um, perhaps that's something that has been um, a conscious decision from the start in UCL East, but it's, it's interesting now how um, UCL East is arriving into a, a new um, area which has been regenerated with other institutions from the start. Having said that, also the British Museum was, um, was in, in Bloomsbury um, by the time that UCL um, set up there. Um, so, so perhaps it was already kind of starting to edge towards um, being more um, kind of densely populated by institutions. Um, but no, it's a, it's a really interesting point. I don't know whether um, Paula might have any... Is it, is it something that um, um, has been spoken about a lot, that this, the benefits of being near other institutions and... So you see this part of um, the East Bank. So this is the new cultural and educational mm -hmm. district that is, is being created uh, in Stratford. Uh, so you mentioned the V&A, Sadras Wells, and the London College of Fashion. We also have the BBC as another big institution which joined the East Bank uh, just last year. So with UCL, uh, they will effectively transform the area. The International Quarter, which has already been built, uh, uh, at the edge of the Olympic Park, uh, has already brought to the park a new uh, big institution, so names like the British Council uh, or Cancer Research UK, so they've transferred their uh, headquarters on the park. So we, we operate from Bloomsbury in basically developing the program for, for UCL East, but we, we often travel to the park, and it's incredible, the transformation that we actually see every time uh, when, when we go. I'm sure that uh, as it did happen in South Kensington, where the, the, the Science Museum and the Natural History Museum, the V&A and the Imperial College created uh, the cultural and educational district that, uh, that we know of, in a similar way then East Bank will replicate uh, that success uh, but in, modern time, in modern times uh, and with innovation. And, and also as we are driving from, from UCL, um, using the skills and the disciplines and the activities that we bring to the park. We're talking about creating a smart park. So taking advantage of UCL East uh, uh, being uh, in a park, so where, where, where you know, we, can, we can obviously use the biodiversity, nurture that uh, element of the park, use the park for research and teaching, and of course all part of uh, the well-being strategy that the UCL has, has developed. Uh, for the whole of the university. So I think it's, it's, an, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity and time will tell uh, the success and, uh, uh, and maybe we will be here, maybe not us, others, uh, a new historian in 50 or 100 years time uh, looking back <laughs> at the development of UCL East and what UCL will, will, will be doing at that point. Because you mentioned, you asked Helen about the phases, uh, perhaps it's an opportunity to say we're developing phase one uh, but of course, uh, there is 11 acres that UCL have uh, uh, acquired at the park. So 50,000 square meters of space out of 180,000 are being developed at the moment. And uh, there will be more to come uh, that obviously will, um, will complement the activities that eight faculties uh, have committed to, to start at UCL in phase one. Any, any other comments or questions? In that case, uh, thank you very much. Amy. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.